Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about empowering couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible. I'm Kristen Cornett, a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and owner of an online fertility practice called Tiny Feet. I work with women and couples all over the world to optimize their health and fertility so they can build the families they've always dreamed of. You can learn more about me on my website at tinyfeet.co. Thanks so much for tuning in with me today. Before we get started, I just want to share a couple of awesome free resources that can help you move forward on your journey. First is the free Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant quiz that will ask you about symptoms in five areas of health that are foundational to fertility and provide you with some practical tips on how to get started addressing each area. Next is the free mini course on how to choose the best prenatal supplements, which walks you through the specific nutrients you need to support your fertility and a healthy pregnancy, and how to find high quality supplements to meet your needs. And lastly, if you're wanting more individualized advice for where to go next on your journey, or you're thinking that you'd like to work with someone one-on-one, you can go ahead and schedule a free 20-minute phone consult with me. You can find links to all three of these resources through the link in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 83, and today I'm going to be talking about different types of hormonal imbalances that can impact fertility. Our menstrual cycles and fertility are such intricate balancing acts of different hormones, and it's truly amazing what can happen when even just one hormone is a little bit out of balance. Both low and high levels of certain hormones can be equally problematic for fertility and can manifest in specific symptoms that can help you identify what might be going wrong in your body. Although you can't definitively diagnose yourself with a hormone imbalance based on symptoms alone, you can at the very least share your observations with your providers and advocate for deeper investigation. So today we're going to be talking about each major type of hormone imbalance, what the common symptoms are, the possible underlying causes, tests you can consider to investigate the problem further, and some possible therapies you can discuss with your practitioner to restore balance to your hormones. These specific imbalances we're going to be talking about today in order are high estrogen, low estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone, high testosterone, low thyroid hormone, and dysregulated cortisol, which includes both low and high cortisol. All right, so we have a lot to go over today, so let's just jump right in and get started. So our first imbalance that we're going to talk about is elevated estrogen. And elevated estrogen can cause several different types of issues in fertility, such as ovulatory dysfunction, or also contribute to anatomical issues that impact fertility, such as fibroids. Uh, Elevated estrogen can also cause imbalances between estrogen and progesterone that impacts the function of the uterine lining, as well as the implantation and the likelihood of your ability to sustain a pregnancy after conceiving. So some of the symptoms that are associated with elevated estrogen, this might be a category that a lot of you are a little bit more familiar with since this seems to be talked about a lot in the fertility community, but some of the symptoms to look for would be heavy periods, very painful periods, PMS, mood swings, or being really emotional or crying for no reason, especially in that late luteal phase, so about a week, sometimes up to two weeks before your period. Uh, Experiencing weight gain around your hips, butt, and thighs. Bloating, especially around ovulation and during the luteal phase. So if you get really bloated right before you ovulate, or you're also getting really bloated or even like super constipated or something before your period, that can be an indication of 
elevated estrogen or estrogen dominance. Uterine fibroids are also a symptom of elevated estrogen. So there are a number of things that can lead to elevated estrogen. So some of the possible causes that we would be looking at would be liver congestion or poor detoxification. So your liver is responsible for processing and conjugating and eliminating hormones that are finished with their physiological function in the body or spent hormones. And so if your liver isn't functioning as well as we'd like it to, if there are issues in either your phase one or your phase two detoxification pathways, that can lead to a slowdown in the processing and elimination of estrogen from your body and can cause you to experience some of these symptoms of elevation. Another thing that can contribute is kind of related to the liver congestion and poor detoxification, but that's genetic predispositions. So genetic SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms that can affect estrogen metabolism include ones that we've talked about before on the podcast, such as COMT, but there are also a huge variety of SNPs in phase one and phase two liver pathways that can affect your ability to process and eliminate estrogen. So genetics could be a reason that you are more prone to having higher levels of estrogen. Poor gut health is another possible contributing factor. Uh, when you think about your liver processing and getting your hormones ready for elimination, those hormones then get injected into the small intestine via bile that is produced in your liver and stored in your gallbladder. But then that bile has to move all the way through the intestines and actually be eliminated in the gut. So one of the things that's really common with women who are constipated is symptoms of elevated estrogen because they're not moving stool through the GI tract at a rate that would help them eliminate their hormones. And so some of those things can get reabsorbed. Also, if you have certain types of bacterial overgrowth in your gut, there are some gram-negative bacteria that can produce an enzyme that can unpackage our estrogen. So the liver packages up and prepares that estrogen for elimination, and some of those gut bacteria can produce substances that unpackage that estrogen and can cause you to reabsorb it. So gut health is really important to estrogen balance. Lack of dietary fiber, this also contributes to the gut health piece. Uh, fiber is necessary to help add bulk to our stool and to help us move that waste through the GI tract effectively. So if there's a lack of dietary fiber in addition to constipation, that can cause estrogen issues. And then of course, estrogen elevations can be caused by environmental exposure to estrogens or xenoestrogens from common toxic exposures in things like plastics or some of the ingredients in our personal care products like synthetic fragrance and phthalates and parabens. So that's one of the reasons that we focus so much on toxin elimination for fertility is because it can significantly disrupt our hormone balance and specifically contribute to higher levels of estrogen in the body. So if based on symptoms, you suspect that you may have elevated estrogen, there are a number of ways that you can investigate this and some tests that you can advocate for yourself with your providers. So some of the first things that you might want to do to investigate estrogen levels would be to just do your day three hormones. A lot of women haven't had these done yet, or they haven't had them all done yet on their fertility journey. So your day three hormones would be your estradiol, your FSH, and your LH. You can also do just a serum estradiol test. Uh, later in the luteal phase, if you want to, typically we evaluate estrogen on day three as more of a fertility indicator, but you can also get an idea of what estrogen is doing in that luteal phase as well. 
Um, the best way I like to look at estrogen for clients is through a Dutch hormone test, which has been talked about several times on the podcast. But a Dutch complete test looks at a bunch of your hormones, including your the different types of estrogen as well as the estrogen metabolites. So you can kind of see how your body is breaking it down and eliminating it. We can see some of these dysregulation in phase one or phase two liver pathways when we look at a Dutch test. And then we also get to see the different types of estrogen rather than just like a total estradiol test that's typically done through serum at your doctor's office. You can also look at some general health labs to determine like how well is your liver functioning or are there maybe some congestion or dysregulation in some of those pathways or organ systems that we were talking about that were important for estrogen elimination. So you could look at something like a metabolic panel, which will tell you um, what's going on with your liver in a little bit more depth. You can also look at a lipid panel. And of course, you can look into gut health a little bit further with something like stool testing. And that can tell you whether you have high levels. Um, if you're doing a GI map test, which is the one I use most frequently in practice, you can tell whether or not you have the type of bacteria that are producing high levels of that enzyme that can unpackage your estrogen. That's called beta-glucuronidase, and that marker is specifically measured on GI map. Uh, some other things that you can use to investigate would be some genetic SNP testing. The preferred lab that I like to use is MaxGen Labs, and I usually recommend their Max Function panel. They have some others. I think they have at least one more that's a little bit more comprehensive uh, and is quite a bit more expensive, but I think we get plenty of information from that Max Function panel, uh, and you can get a lot of info on some of these SNPs that are specifically related to your estrogen processing so that you can see whether or not you're just one of those people that has that genetic predisposition, and you just may need to provide some better ongoing support for your estrogen processing. And then of course you can review your symptoms in context with some of these labs to assess what your estrogen is doing. And you also may want to consider if you've done a lot of elimination of some of the typical environmental toxins in your environment that are known to cause some issues with estrogen, but you're still seeing a lot of symptoms, that may be an issue with detoxification and you could consider some toxicity testing to figure out whether or not you may have been storing up some of those hormone disrupting chemicals that would affect your estrogen levels. Okay, so let's talk about some of the possible therapies for elevated estrogen. And of course, I am going to go over supplements in these categories and talk about some of the things that are commonly used for these different hormone imbalances. I really do want to emphasize, though, that this is not medical advice. I'm not suggesting that you self-prescribe or start taking these things on your own. It really is best to make sure that you're working with a qualified practitioner before you start implementing supplements, just to make sure that you're taking the right things and that you've been assessed properly in the first place. So I'll give you an overview overview of some of the things that could be used, and then you'll want to go and take that information to your practitioner and discuss what's right in your specific situation. So some of the things that can help with elevated estrogen would be supporting methylation pathways, which has to do with your processing and detoxification of hormones. So methylation support can include things like B vitamins, especially, and methylation is responsible for Detoxifying and eliminating, it's, it's actually one of our phase two liver pathways, and it is responsible for helping us eliminate a number of substances from our body, as well as a whole bunch of other physiological functions that methylation is important for. You can also consider liver supportive herbs, things that support phase one pathways like milk thistle, dandelion, or burdock. Another thing that can be helpful specifically for estrogen levels is methane or DIM. 
Calcium deglucurate is another one. There's a supplement that I like uh, to use frequently with clients that are experiencing some estrogen dysregulation that includes both DIM and calcium deglucurate. You can also consider other liver supportive nutrients and antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine or glutathione. Uh, some dietary considerations would be making sure that you're getting plenty of fiber in the diet. And specifically, you can be getting both fiber as well as sulfur nutrients that are important for estrogen processing from cruciferous vegetables. So things like cauliflower, kale, broccoli, cabbage, those are all great vegetables to include on a regular basis to assist with estrogen processing. And it's best to prioritize those from the diet, but there may also be some supplements that your practitioner would recommend that include some of of those sulfur compounds that are found in cruciferous vegetables. And then of course, if you are experiencing some estrogen dominance related to environmental exposures, then reducing, identifying and reducing those in your environment as much as possible can significantly help improve hormone balance. Okay, so that was a quick overview of elevated estrogen, and we're going to move on to low estrogen. So low estrogen is obviously an issue because we require estrogen to build up our uterine lining as well as to mature our egg cells. Uh, and elevated or correct levels of estrogen are one of the things that helps signal the release of LH mid-cycle and that helps signal ovulation. So all of these hormones are extremely important to be balanced throughout the menstrual cycle so that each event happens when it's supposed to happen. So low estrogen levels can result in no menstrual cycle, so you're not ovulating, or it can result in suboptimal egg quality, so your eggs aren't as mature or healthy as you would want them to be. So some of the symptoms of low estrogen include vaginal dryness, pain with sex, uh, depression or low mood. You may have irregular or absent periods. You might also experience things like night sweats or hot flashes with low estrogen. Night sweats and hot flashes can be related to a few other things as well. But if you also have other symptoms of low estrogen, you might want to consider that night sweats and hot flashes could be related to your estrogen levels. You may experience short or very light periods with low estrogen. And estrogen is also really important to the integrity of our vaginal tissue as well as our urinary tract. So a lot of women with low estrogen get urinary symptoms like frequent urinary tract infections or even other symptoms like dribbling or a little incontinence. That's a little more common in like perimenopause and menopause. But if you're experiencing a lot of issues with your urinary tract, you should consider the possibility of estrogen levels being out of balance. Also, if you've experienced a shrinking in your breast tissue, that could be a sign of low estrogen. And estrogen is also really important to your skin elasticity and hydration. So if you're noticing that your skin is less elastic or a little saggy or a bit dry, that could indicate that your estrogen levels are a bit on the low side. So let's talk about some of the possible causes of low estrogen. One, of course, is going to be perimenopause. This happens often to women when they start to experience that change later on in life. So that could be a possible issue. For younger women, hopefully that's going to be less common, although it is possible to go through early menopause. So if you are experiencing these symptoms, you definitely want to make sure that you get your hormones investigated to assess whether or not that might be something that's happening for you. Another common cause of low estrogen levels is overdoing the physical stress on your body. And that is usually a result for women of over-exercising. So when we talk about things like hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is basically a lack of period 
Um, that is often due to malnutrition, not eating enough and exercising too much. And so in addition to overexercise, the next possible cause of low estrogen is malnutrition or simply not eating enough or not eating a nutrient dense diet or missing certain nutrients that are really important to menstrual cycle health, like iron, for instance. We can also see low estrogen with immune system dysfunction. So inflammation that may be affecting the ovaries and impairing their function. And we can also see low estrogen as a result of autoimmune conditions. So it is possible to produce autoantibodies or self antibodies to our ovarian tissue. And some women who have a diminished ovarian reserve or a primary ovarian insufficiency diagnosis are producing antibodies to their ovarian tissue. So looking into autoimmunity, if you can't find another cause of low estrogen levels or impaired ovarian function, that could be one place to look. Pituitary issues are also common with low estrogen. And this is really common to see with women who have a history of hypothalamic amenorrhea. So if they've lost their period in the past due to overexercise, malnutrition, maybe some excessive physical stress or physical or emotional trauma in the past, it's common for there to be some ongoing issues with the pituitary regulating itself and excreting the proper hormones to keep the menstrual cycle regulated. So if you have that history, it's possible that you still have something going on with your pituitary gland. Thyroid dysfunction can also cause issues with ovarian function. The whole endocrine system is very connected. So if you have a problem in one gland, it's likely affecting other glands. And it's very common to see ovarian function issues when there's also something going on with the thyroid, especially you know, if the thyroid is super low functioning, like it's not producing enough thyroid hormone to regulate our metabolic rate. Uh, our thyroid is, helps us kind of determine whether or not the environment is appropriate like for our energy production. It helps us determine whether or not we should pre be producing more or less energy in response to the environment. Um, so thyroid is really important to ovarian function. Environmental toxicity is of course another thing that can impact estrogen levels. Certain toxins can interfere with the brain ovary communication, or they can also directly affect the function of the ovaries and their ability to produce estrogen. So if you have a history of heavy toxic exposure or you've ruled out some of these other issues and haven't looked into environmental toxicity, that might be something that you could consider. And then of course, we, I think I mentioned this earlier, but physical or emotional trauma in the past can cause issues with the brain's communication with the ovaries and result in some ongoing uh, pituitary issues or stimulate the limbic system in a specific way that leads to hormone imbalances. So some of the ways to investigate low estrogen uh, would be, of course, once again, your day three, estradiol, FSH, and LH. We can see not only the estradiol levels on day three, but also how are those pituitary hormones communicating with the ovaries? Are they high? Are they low? Uh, what's going on there? Of course, a Dutch complete or even a Dutch cycle mapping test. So a Dutch complete test is done on one day of the cycle, typically about seven days after ovulation. But some women really need to see what's going on throughout their menstrual cycle. So is their estrogen really low in that normal proliferative stage, like between seven and 14 days of the menstrual cycle? If estrogen's low during that time, that can really be affecting the maturation process of eggs and the ability to ovulate normally. 
And so sometimes it's more helpful instead of doing the one snapshot with a Dutch complete, you could do a cycle mapping test and Dutch offers a cycle mapping test, or you can also consider some other companies that offer salivary cycle mapping tests that look at progesterone and estrogen throughout the cycle. And two of the companies that I know of that offer really high quality tests uh, for salivary testing would be Genova Diagnostics and another company called Diagnostex. You can look at a full thyroid panel and just as a reminder, if you haven't heard me talk about this before on the podcast, a full thyroid panel includes TSH, free and total T4, free and total T3, as well as thyroid antibodies. And some practitioners may also want to look at your reverse T3 or your T3 uptake as well to do a full assessment. You can also look into some general health labs that can help assess for your nutritional status, whether or not you're anemic or B vitamin deficient. So you can look at at labs like a complete blood count, homocysteine levels, an iron panel, ferritin levels, blood sugar markers or inflammation markers that can also help assess what might be going on with estrogen. Blood sugar markers would include a fasting glucose, a fasting insulin, as well as a hemoglobin A1C. And one of the primary inflammation markers you can look at is a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. So when it comes to toxicity testing, there are a lot of different options for this because there's a lot of different potential toxins that we can be exposed to. Some of my favorite testing comes from Great Plains Labs. So they have some great tests that look at both metal and non-metal toxicity. So when we're talking about metals, we're talking about like heavy metals, things like mercury and lead and arsenic and cadmium. Those things can have a really heavy impact on the entire endocrine system as well as the ovaries. But we're also talking about non-metal toxicity that would be things like herbicides and pesticides and industrial chemicals and things that we're even just exposed to on a regular basis in our air and our water. And Great Plains has a test called GPL Tox that looks at, I want to say it's like 170 to 180 different non-metal chemicals and their metabolites to determine whether or not we're, we have an ongoing exposure to something that could be affecting our ovaries. And antibody testing is also available. I mentioned autoimmunity as a possible cause of low estrogen or something like a diminished ovarian reserve or a POI diagnosis. And antibody testing can be helpful for that. And then of course, just basic assessments, like looking at your symptoms, looking at what your food journal looks like. You know, Do you have any chronic infections or things that could be stressing the body and causing some of that physical stress that would result in your body perceiving the environment as dangerous and producing fewer sex hormones to regulate your menstrual cycle. Okay, moving on to possible therapies for low estrogen. Once again, discuss these with your practitioner before you implement any. Uh, some things that can help boost estrogen levels when they're low would be maca, black cohosh, which is an herbal therapy. Some women respond really well to DHEA therapy, and it's often recommended for older women who are trying to conceive, like over the age of 35, to take DHEA for their fertility. Sometimes the dosages of DHEA that are recommended are a little bit on the high side, and instead of converting that into estrogen, a lot of women end up converting that to too much testosterone. And we'll talk about why that's problematic uh, a little bit later when we talk about testosterone levels, but just be aware that it is possible to overdo it on DHEA, so more is not always better when you're looking at trying to support estrogen. You can also consider some glandular supplements. Um, glandular supplements are basically 
taking extracts of the gland that you're trying to support. So in this case, taking ovarian glandulars or um, a glandular supplement that includes multiple different endocrine glands in it. There are some from a company called Standard Process that I really like that can be super helpful in cases where estrogen production is not optimal. We can also look at supporting the adrenals or the HPA axis. The HPA axis is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And so, of course, your adrenals are also part of your endocrine system. And the way that your brain communicates with those adrenal glands has a huge impact on how the rest of your endocrine system and your reproductive system is operating. And so these are some of the things that can help support you know, bringing the pituitary back online if there's some ongoing issues with that can, can really help support cortisol production, um, which can be important for some women, um, and just help manage the stress response and make sure that that's healthy and that it's not contributing to dysregulation in sex hormones. And of course, it's important to review the diet and make sure that nutrient density is sufficient so that you're getting plenty of B vitamins and minerals and essential nutrients and protein, uh, healthy fats. Those are all things that are required for a healthy menstrual cycle and estrogen production. And then if you happen to be over-exercising or you have a history of over-exercise, it's different for everybody what each woman can tolerate. For some, you know, even moderate to occasional high intensity exercise is too much for them. Some women respond well to doing moderate to high intensity exercise. This really needs to be assessed for what's best for your body. But if you have a history of over-exercising, your body may be more sensitive to some of those higher intensity activities, especially things like running, or if you've been a distance runner in the past or um, a really elite athlete, that might be something to consider cutting back in those areas to get your hormone production back online. And then of course, I think we'll probably talk about this with almost all of the hormone imbalances, but making sure that you're assessing for and reducing any environmental exposures that are specifically disrupting estrogen. Okay, so we've covered both high and low estrogen. We are gonna move on now to low progesterone. So low progesterone is a problem for fertility because progesterone is required to really prime that uterine lining that estrogen has started to build up during the follicular phase and prepare it for healthy implantation. So not having enough progesterone in the second half of your cycle can lead to a uterine lining that is not prepared to receive an embryo. And this can result in either infertility or it can also increase the risk of early miscarriage. So making sure that progesterone is optimal is really important. And a lot of the symptoms of low progesterone are very similar to the symptoms of elevated estrogen because those two hormones exist so much in balance with one another. And so sometimes it can be difficult to tell just based on symptoms whether or not you have a progesterone issue, an estrogen issue, or maybe a mixture of both. So some of the symptoms that we would be looking for with low progesterone would be PMS, uh, breast tenderness, especially in the second half of your cycle, like a week before your period, if your periods are very heavy or extremely painful. If you have spotting between periods, this was actually my primary symptom of low progesterone was that I would spot for four to five days prior to starting my period pretty much every single month. So that can be a sign of low progesterone. If you experience a lot of mood issues uh, or anxiety in the luteal phase, so in the week before your period, you're super anxious or really super irritable, that can be a sign of low progesterone. 
Of course, if you're experiencing infertility or uh, multiple early losses, that can be a sign of low progesterone. We've had a couple of episodes on progesterone and one in particular on low progesterone. It was back in the 20s. I'll look up what that episode is and link it in the show notes. But we did that with Amy Beckley from the company Prove, and she developed an at-home progesterone test for women to see whether or not they're producing optimal levels of progesterone to sustain a pregnancy and confirm ovulation in their luteal phase. And lastly, if you commonly experience headaches or migraines before your periods, that can be a sign of low progesterone. So let's talk about possible causes of progesterone deficiency. So some of the things that can impair ovarian function and lead to less than optimal corpus luteum, which is the structure that was a follicle during the follicular phase and then transforms into that corpus luteum during the second half of the cycle after ovulation. So uh, inflammation or autoimmune issues can impair the function of that corpus luteum. If we have thyroid dysfunction happening, that can impair progesterone production due to impaired ovarian function. Chronic stress or dysregulated cortisol, which we'll talk more about dysregulated cortisol toward the end of this episode. But if you're experiencing high levels of stress, it's very common for women who are experiencing that to also have low progesterone, especially if their cortisol is really on the high side. And so cortisol can actually reduce the receptivity of your uterine tissue to the signal of progesterone. So you might even have good levels of progesterone, but that cortisol is interfering with how your uterine tissue is responding responding to cortisol, and that can cause symptoms of low progesterone. Environmental toxins are something that can impair ovarian function and progesterone production. Uh, lack of nutrition can impair progesterone production if we don't have enough nutrients to support that corpus luteum to continue producing progesterone throughout the entire luteal phase. That can cause issues. And some other things that can cause excessive stress or inflammation or autoimmunity in the body uh, are also chronic infections. So if you have something going on in your gut that's causing an issue, or you have a chronic viral infection, or if you have a history of viral infections, you might have something chronic going on that could be affecting ovarian function and progesterone production. Okay, so how to investigate low progesterone levels. So you can do a seven days after confirmed ovulation serum progesterone test, and your doctor can order this for you. You can also do a Dutch complete test or a cycle mapping test, either with Dutch or through one of the salivary labs that I mentioned, Genova Diagnostics or Diagnostex. And the cycle map, once again, gives you an idea of what's happening with both estrogen and progesterone throughout your cycle. So a cycle mapping test can, can tell you what does progesterone look like throughout your luteal phase instead of just getting that one snapshot of what it looks like seven days after ovulation, either through blood or Dutch Complete. Another thing that you can do at home to investigate this, as I mentioned, interviewing Amy Beckley from Prove Test, you can use those Prove strips at home. I think it's about $40 for one packet of them that will take you through a measurement for most of your luteal phase. And that will tell you, like, are you actually producing sufficient levels of progesterone throughout that whole second half of your cycle? Or maybe you're testing really well on day seven, eight, or nine, and then your progesterone drops off on day nine or 10 and gets really low. That can give you an idea of whether or not you're actually actually producing enough progesterone through that whole luteal phase to sustain a pregnancy. 
You can also look at a thyroid panel, which is, of course, once again, very important to ovarian function, that our thyroid is well-balanced. Um, and you can look at other general health markers as well for potential nutrient deficiencies or inflammation or things that might be affecting ovarian function. You can look at stool testing. Gut health is obviously a big piece of both our nutrient absorption as well as our immune system function. So we can look at the gut as a possible source of inflammation or um, impaired nutrient absorption that might be affecting the ovaries. So we can look at, do you have dysbiosis? Do you have sufficient amounts of healthy bacteria? Do you have overgrowths of pathogenic bacteria? Is there inflammation in the intestines? So the GI map test tests something called calprotectin. If that's elevated, your intestines are inflamed and that can be, um, that can be a, a significant impact on other body systems. And then we can also look at food sensitivities. So food sensitivities are very common with progesterone issues. They are one of the things that can increase our cortisol or our stress levels and start to cause impairments in sex hormone production. So this is something that's really not commonly looked at at all in conventional medicine, but food sensitivity testing or um, even just trying an elimination diet of some of the most common food sensitivities can make a big difference for some women in getting their hormone production back on track. Okay, so let's talk about some of the therapies that are commonly recommended for low progesterone production. And some of these are not going to address the underlying causes of low progesterone. They're gonna kind of be more things that support the body to help increase production a little bit. But if there's an underlying issue, such as inflammation or food sensitivity or chronic stress going on, we still need to focus on removing those things while we also support progesterone production. So some of the therapies you could consider would be Vitex. So Vitex can be really helpful for progesterone production. It works by um, acting on dopamine and prolactin, reducing prolactin levels, encouraging ovulation. Some women who ovulate later in their cycle can benefit from Vitex, and some women see a, a healthy increase in their progesterone production or just the length and health of their luteal phase when they're taking Vitex. So it's kind of like an adaptogenic herb for the ovaries. Um, maca can have a similar effect. This can be helpful. I mentioned it when we talked about increasing estrogen, but it can also be helpful for increasing progesterone, especially if you're somebody who has an overall low hormone presentation. You can benefit from something that boosts both estrogen as well as progesterone levels, and maca can do that. There's also a specific form of maca that I use sometimes that can um, act in a very adaptogenic or, or balancing way for the menstrual cycle called... Um, it's Maca Pro Harmony, and it's a great product. I use that frequently with, with clients. Um, HPA axis or adrenal support, so making sure that the adrenal glands are well supported and that our cortisol production is balanced can be very helpful for progesterone production. Looking at antioxidant nutrients to protect the ovaries from damage from free radicals, also mitochondrial support. So we have tons and tons and tons of mitochondria in each of our egg cells, uh, as well as in our ovaries. And we need to make sure that we have healthy mitochondria to produce energy. The process of maturing egg cells and ovulating, the whole menstrual cycle is a very energy intensive process. And so we can benefit a lot from antioxidant and mitochondrial support. And antioxidants include things like vitamin C and vitamin E, 
antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine or alpha-lipoic acid. Mitochondrial supports include things like carnitine or CoQ10, which are frequently recommended in fertility-specific supports for women. There's also natural anti-inflammatories. So if you're somebody that's really prone to inflammation, you can consider some herbal supports for anti-inflammation. Something like turmeric, for instance, could be really helpful. B vitamins are also helpful to adrenal function, to managing stress better, to increasing nutrition that's getting to the ovaries. Um, I recommend B vitamins in a lot of my protocols because I find through labs that a lot of women are deficient or they have, um, they have lab evidence or symptom evidence of B vitamin deficiency. And then focusing really specifically on diet and lifestyle strategies that are supportive for the overall menstrual cycle, for blood sugar, for stress, all of those things can have a positive impact on progesterone. Okay, so moving on to testosterone. We're going to talk first about low testosterone, and then we'll talk about high testosterone. So low testosterone can be an issue for fertility because it affects libido. So if we have low testosterone, we often don't feel like having sex, which can definitely be an issue when you need to do that to try to conceive. Low testosterone can also have an impact on the quality of our egg cells. So low testosterone is one of, I think, the four main causes of poor egg quality. So this is definitely something to think about for especially women who are a little bit older and maybe seeing a drop-off in testosterone production, but there are other things that can cause issues with testosterone as well. So first, let's go over symptoms. So I mentioned already low libido is a symptom of low testosterone. You may also be experiencing difficulty reaching orgasm, fatigue and lack of motivation, depression or mood swings, and loss of muscle tone or trouble gaining muscle even when you're exercising, like doing weight-bearing exercises. Some possible causes of low testosterone include excessive stress on the adrenal glands. So DHEA is one of our primary adrenal hormones and that will convert into our androgen hormones, including testosterone. So if we have a lot of adrenal stress or we're not producing sufficient amounts of DHEA, that can lead to low testosterone levels. If we're not exercising, exercise helps support testosterone production. So exercising um, or being sedentary can be one of the causes. Pituitary issues, so if the brain is not communicating well with the ovaries, that can cause issues with testosterone production. There are some dietary issues. Now, depending on the person, a diet that's high in sugar and starch can cause either issue with testosterone to happen, so high levels or low levels. Environmental toxicity could be a possible underlying cause as well. So in terms of how to investigate your testosterone levels, you can obviously just do a testosterone test with your doctor, a blood test. Uh, you can test both total testosterone as well as free testosterone. And having both will give you a little bit more information on exactly what's going on with your testosterone. If you have elevated levels of testosterone, uh, which we'll talk about in the next sec section, you also might wanna consider testing sex hormone binding globulin. Um, so if your sex hormone binding globulin is high, your testosterone could be low and then vice versa. You can also test DHEA or DHEAS. These are also testable through a Dutch complete test. So if you do a Dutch complete, that will also give you DHEA, testosterone, and the metabolites of those. So you can get a more clear picture of what's happening with the uh, adrenal function as well as the sex hormone function. 
And then possible therapies to address low testosterone levels include supporting the adrenals, since we know that that's an important component of testosterone production. You can also consider a DHEA supplement. We talked about this when we talked about low estrogen, but DHEA can also support testosterone production. And so women frequently benefit from taking DHEA when their levels are low, and this can really help boost egg quality uh, because it supports both estrogen and testosterone. Uh, maca is another thing that will support testosterone production. And then changing the way that you're exercising. So exercising more in general, but focusing specifically on exercises that build muscle. So weight training or resistance training is really supportive to testosterone production. And then making sure that you are eating a diet that is adequate in protein and healthy fats can significantly help with testosterone levels. Okay, so that covers low testosterone. Let's move on to discussing high levels of testosterone. Now, high testosterone is probably the type of testosterone dysregulation that we hear about most often in the fertility context. It is responsible for the hormonal issues that we see in polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, which is one of the most common causes of female infertility. So when we have high levels of testosterone that can that can cause lack of ovulation or delayed ovulation. So women who have high levels of testosterone will frequently have very irregular or even absent periods. So if you don't have predictable cycles, you're not ovulating on a regular basis, that obviously makes it really difficult to get pregnant. So some of the symptoms that we might see with high testosterone and also with polycystic ovarian syndrome would be irregular or absent periods, acne, particularly like cystic acne on the face, around the jaw, oily skin and hair. Many women will experience loss of scalp hair, or they might experience hair growth in areas that women don't typically grow a lot of hair, such as on the face or on the body, like the chest. And also mood issues, including irritability and aggression. Some of the possible causes of high testosterone are PCOS. So if you have a PCOS diagnosis, that is typically meaning that you have elevated levels of testosterone. That is a complicated condition and one that is really not well named <laughs> because you don't have to have cysts on the ovaries in order to qualify for a PCOS diagnosis. So you really do need to make sure that if you've received that diagnosis that you have had your hormone levels assessed to determine whether PCOS is really the cause. Also insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. When our insulin levels are high in the bloodstream on a regular basis, that can cause our muscle tissue or our muscle tissue cells to become less sensitive to, uh, to insulin's message, which causes the body to produce more insulin. But when we have all that insulin, it can actually cause the ovaries to increase their production of male hormones, specifically testosterone. And that's what can disrupt ovulation. So looking at insulin levels and blood sugar regulation is an important underlying investigation for PCOS or elevated testosterone. Inflammation levels can also increase testosterone levels. Um, oxidative stress, so an imbalance between the amount of antioxidants that we're either producing internally or getting from our diet and the number of uh, free radicals or reactive oxygen species in our body. So an imbalance in between those two, not enough antioxidants to offset free radicals can cause oxidative stress and that can cause the body to inflame and increase testosterone production. We can also see elevated testosterone with conditions like congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So this is something that is sometimes misdiagnosed as PCOS. 
when there hasn't been an underlying investigation into the adrenals. And then you can sometimes see high testosterone levels after stopping birth control. And so we call that like a post-pill androgen rebound. And sometimes that will resolve on its own within like three to six months. Some women experience it longer. Okay, so now that we've talked about possible causes of high testosterone, let's talk about what we can do to investigate. The investigative process is very similar to what we do when we're looking for potential low testosterone, but we may include a couple of additional investigative markers in this process when we're looking at high versus low, just because some of the underlying causes include things like the blood sugar dysregulation piece or um, elevated inflammation levels. So we can of course look at serum levels of total and free testosterone. We can look at DHEAS. We can look at these hormones through a Dutch complete test or a salivary panel. Can also look at these and then the blood sugar markers that we would include would be a fasting glucose, a fasting insulin, a hemoglobin A1C test. And for some people, they may benefit from doing like a two-hour glucose tolerance test to look deeper into the blood sugar and insulin dysregulation issue. We can also look at some general health markers and inflammation markers like a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. We can also often see dysregulation in a lipid panel if there's dysregulation in blood sugar or testosterone levels. So things like that can be helpful as well. And then some of the therapies that are often used for women who have high testosterone levels or PCOS include inositol, uh, a combination of myo-inositol and inositol is often used, N-acetylcysteine, which can be helpful for reducing testosterone levels and encouraging ovulation. It's also an antioxidant and a liver supportive nutrient. So NAC is um, a very helpful for multiple types of dysregulation, not just elevated testosterone. Also zinc and B vitamins can be very helpful for this issue. Many women respond well to hormone balancing herbs, such as licorice, peony, black cohosh, vitex, or cinnamon. And antioxidants are also often recommended. I talked about some of those a little bit earlier when we were talking about low progesterone, but NAC is an antioxidant, vitamin C, vitamin E, alpha lipoic acid, uh, lots of great antioxidants can be helpful in this specific situation. Some women also experience benefits from methane, which we talked about when we discussed elevated estrogen, but DIM can also help um, reduce testosterone levels or um, androgen potency. And also saw palmetto, which is another herbal support that's very effective at reducing testosterone and can really help bring down some of those specific symptoms of elevated testosterone levels. Of course, once again, discuss specific supplementation for your situation with your practitioner. Okay, moving on to our second to last category, and we're going to talk about low thyroid hormone. So both low and high thyroid hormone can be an issue for fertility, but we most often see low thyroid hormone as a primary contributing factor to fertility issues. So thyroid function is really important to ovarian function, and having less than optimal thyroid function or low thyroid hormone levels can really significantly impact the menstrual cycle and fertility potential. So it can cause infertility as well as increase the risk of early miscarriage. So this is definitely a really important thing to be considering. And a lot of women are not receiving a full assessment of their thyroid. They may have only had their TSH tested, and there's a lot more to look at with thyroid function than just TSH. So Consider the following symptoms um, and see whether or not you fit into any of these as somebody who may be experiencing some issues with their thyroid. So low thyroid hormone symptoms or hypothyroid symptoms include fatigue, depression, lack of motivation, 
weight gain, especially around the hips and butt, loss of scalp hair, which can also be an issue with elevated testosterone. So you'll want to look at whether or not you're also experiencing more symptoms in that testosterone category or in this thyroid hormone category. You might be experiencing dry, itchy skin or dry, brittle hair, constipation or slow bowel motility, cold hands and feet, spotting between periods or erratic cervical mucus patterns. So if you see mucus at weird times in your cycle, or you'll see mucus for a day and then it'll disappear and then you see it again, or your body's like trying to gear up multiple times to ovulate, but then backs off. And so you ovulate later in your cycle, infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss low basal body temperature. So if you're consistently in your follicular phase, so the first half of your menstrual cycle, if you're consistently seeing your basal body temperature below 97.5 degrees, that can be a thyroid indicator. And then also puffy eyes or face, especially when you wake up in the morning can be a thyroid symptom. So possible causes of low thyroid function or hypothyroidism include autoimmunity. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis, this is actually the cause of about 80% of cases of hypothyroidism. And the reason that this is so important to discuss is because antibodies to thyroid tissue, which is what helps assess for Hashimoto's, are rarely tested in conventional medicine. And part of the reason for that is that when you consider how to treat thyroid issues in conventional medicine, it's usually recommended that um, T4, synthetic T4 medication be given and having positive antibodies or not doesn't change the treatment that most practitioners will recommend. So for them, it's not relevant to test that when all they're really trying to do is get your TSH and your T4 in range with medication. So that's the reason that a lot of women aren't assessed for thyroid antibodies. But I think it's really important to do that because it's important to know whether or not you have immune system dysfunction going on in addition to thyroid dysfunction. Some other things that can result in low thyroid hormone or hypothyroidism include adrenal stress or HPA axis dysfunction. So like we've talked about several times throughout this episode, the entire endocrine system is very intricately connected. So if there's a problem with the adrenal glands or the communication between the brain and the adrenal glands, that can have a significant impact on thyroid function as well as sex hormone production and ovarian function as well. Low thyroid hormone can also be caused by chronic infections. So Hashimoto's is often uh, triggered by something like a chronic viral infection, like Epstein-Barr. That's a very common trigger for autoimmunity in some people. Um, some people are also dealing with chronic infections in their GI tract that may be causing some inflammation and the formation of autoantibodies. So that's something to consider. Gut dysfunction, which includes having overgrowth of bacteria or having damage to the intestinal lining, which is really common when we see things like poor diet or use of antibiotics frequently in the past, um, environmental toxins and exposures, consuming foods that we're sensitive to, those things can all affect gut health. And one of the reasons that gut health is so important to thyroid function is that about 20 or so percent of our thyroid hormone is actually converted from inactive T4 into active T3 in our gut. So it's really important to make sure that both the gut and of course the liver also, that's where 60% of the thyroid hormone conversion happens. It's really important to make sure that those two systems are really working well when we're considering um, the function of our thyroid. Uh, food sensitivities, which I mentioned as a contributor to gut dysfunction, but they can also directly contribute to inflammation. And in particular with thyroid, we see gluten and dairy as some of the most common triggers for autoimmunity 
uh, or the formation of autoantibodies in thyroid um, issues. And so those are commonly recommended as eliminations for any autoimmune condition, but very specifically thyroid autoimmunity. Environmental toxins, of course, because those can contribute to pretty much every type of hormonal dysregulation that we've talked about in this episode so far. And then nutrient deficiencies. So very specifically, there are minerals that are required for normal thyroid uh, production, normal thyroid hormone production, as well as conversion from T4 to T3. And so those minerals include iodine, zinc, selenium, and magnesium. So let's talk about how to investigate the possibility of low thyroid hormone production or hypothyroidism. So I would request a full thyroid panel from your doctor, and you might have to really advocate for this because like I mentioned, it's not common to get a full panel tested in conventional medicine. So a full panel includes TSH, free and total T4, free and total T3, and both types of thyroid antibodies, so your thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin antibodies. And it can also be helpful to have reverse T3 or T3 uptake measured as well. So other investigations into thyroid health can include a thyroid ultrasound. So in a small subset of people who have Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroid disease, they actually don't show elevated antibodies, but they will show inflammation in the actual thyroid gland. And so I have had a couple of clients whose doctors diagnosed them with Hashimoto's based on ultrasound, but they actually didn't have elevated or at least not significantly elevated thyroid antibodies. So that's something that can be done as well. I mentioned that having a low basal body temperature can be a thyroid indicator. And so that's something that you can actually take to your practitioner and say, hey, I've been tracking my basal body temperature and it's consistently really low in that follicular phase. And that can be a justification that you use to get a little bit more testing for thyroid. You can also look into gut or food sensitivity testing, as well as some general health markers. Um, you know, looking at a full blood panel is helpful, along with a full thyroid panel, just to see what other areas of your health might be struggling and how can we indirectly support the thyroid by making sure that you're sufficient in nutrients, that you're getting plenty of healthy fats, that your inflammation markers are in balance, that you're not anemic or B vitamin deficient. So those things can help as well. So let's talk about possible therapies for balancing the thyroid. You can discuss thyroid medication with your doctor, and depending on what your thyroid panel is looking like, uh, and depending on the type of practitioner that you're seeing, they may suggest a T4-only medication like Synthroid, which is also known as the generic levothyroxine, or they may suggest a combination T4 and T3 medication. And those can either be synthetic or you can get them from a natural desiccated thyroid hormone, which normally comes from pig thyroid gland. Um, and so those, those are options for medication as well. Some people do a lot better having that T3 in the medication because the body does have to convert T4 into T3. And we talked about the primary areas of conversion being the liver and the gut. And so if there are some issues going on with gut or liver, some people may have trouble converting that T4 to T3 and they'll respond better to a medication that also includes T3. So these are all conversations to have with your prescribing provider um, just to see what might be right for you. You can also consider support for your liver since like I mentioned, 60% of thyroid hormone conversion uh, happens there. So supporting phase two and phase one liver detoxification pathways can be really helpful in helping boost that conversion from T4 to T3 and really help alleviating some of those low thyroid symptoms that we talked about at the beginning. 
reducing exposure to specific environmental toxins that can have a huge impact on thyroid function. So some of the things that show up really frequently in the research as being specifically problematic for thyroid are pesticides, chlorine and fluoride in water, which pretty much everybody has at least one of those two in their water. Most, I think it's about 70% of the United States has fluoridated water. And I know fluoride is a really contentious topic. Um, and it's, it's really, it's not a mineral that we have any specific, specific nutritional requirement for in our bodies. It is added to water to try to prevent dental cavities, but the research on that is actually pretty controversial. And there are some pretty compelling studies that suggest that it's toxic to the thyroid and that it can have a negative impact on baby's development during pregnancy and their intelligence in infancy and childhood. So definitely something to consider filtering fluoride out of your water. I actually have a whole house filter that filters both chlorine and fluoride as well as a couple of other things. That's quite an investment, but you could at least start with filtering it out of your drinking water and considering like a shower filter that attaches to your shower head that will at least reduce the amount of fluoride in your water if not eliminate it completely. Another thing to consider, and this might be something that a lot of you haven't thought about yet, but uh, non-stick cookware. There is significant evidence that shows that the chemicals that are used in like Teflon pans are pretty toxic to the thyroid and they're extremely difficult for us to eliminate from our bodies. It can take years and years and years to detoxify these chemicals. And so eliminating them sooner rather than later is definitely positive. They're also linked to birth defects and other issues in pregnancy. So these categories of toxins are definitely high priority if you have thyroid dysfunction to start eliminating those. I mentioned earlier that a gluten and dairy-free diet is often very helpful for people who have thyroid issues. For all of my clients that come to me and show even low positive thyroid antibodies, I will recommend a gluten and dairy-free elimination to see if it helps them. Gluten, protein, and thyroid tissue have similar protein sequences or amino acid sequences. And so that is a way that the body can kind of get confused. If we start producing some antibodies to gluten, we could also start producing antibodies to thyroid tissue. So an elimination protocol, at least of those two foods, sometimes for additional foods, if there might be other sensitivities that could be affecting gut health or leading to inflammation in the body, that's one really great way to start getting some better balance in thyroid hormone production. Of course, gut healing support and probiotic therapy can be very supportive to that gut environment where about 20% of our hormone, thyroid hormone is converted from T4 to T3. Adrenal or HPA axis support, which we've talked about in other sections, and we're going to talk more about that in the next section when we talk about cortisol. And then of course, making sure that we are eating a really nutrient dense diet and specifically focusing on some of those essential minerals like iodine, zinc, selenium, and magnesium. So we might need to supplement with some of those things. You should never supplement at high doses with iodine if you have Hashimoto's or if you have an autoimmune response to your thyroid. Iodine can actually aggravate um, thyroid issues and cause a flare of the autoimmune response. So be careful with that. I believe I actually talked about that in the most recent Q&A episode. So go back a couple episodes and check that out if you're curious about whether or not it's safe to self-medicate with iodine. Spoiler alert, the answer is no. Um, so definitely check that out and get a little bit more information about iodine and thyroid hormone. Uh, the other minerals are typically safe to supplement with in reasonable doses. And of course, you know, work with a practitioner if you're experiencing issues with your thyroid so you can get individualized recommendations on what's right for you. 
Okay, so that was kind of a long discussion on thyroid. It's a big topic and a very common issue in the fertility community. So now we are going to move on to the last section, which is cortisol dysregulation. And this includes both high cortisol as well as low cortisol. And so cortisol is one of our primary stress hormones in the body. It's responsible for our get up and go um, in the morning. It's responsible for um, how our bodies react to stress, to a stressful situation, our ability to get into that fight or flight mode. If we're confronted with a stressor, we can either run away or we can stay and fight. Cortisol, as well as some other stress hormones, are highly responsible for our ability to engage in those reactions. And they do a lot of, cortisol does a lot of other important things for us as well. So we literally can't live without it. It's important to have imbalanced amounts. So both too high or too low can cause issues with the endocrine system, as well as fertility and pregnancy. So some of the symptoms of high cortisol include having high levels of perceived stress. So if you just feel like totally stressed out and frantic about your life, that can definitely be a symptom of high cortisol. If you have trouble sleeping, so either trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, if you're waking up in the middle of the night between like 2 and 4 a.m., that can be a classic sign of elevated cortisol. So your cortisol is actually rising in the middle of the night when it should be low and causing you to wake up. Blood sugar or blood pressure dysregulation can be a symptom of elevated cortisol. So when our levels are higher, that actually elevated cortisol increases our blood sugar. So if you have consistently elevated blood sugar levels, even if your diet is pretty clean and not super high in sugar or starch, that can definitely indicate that chronic stress and elevated cortisol might be to blame. If you have a high resting pulse rate or high blood pressure, that can definitely be related to high cortisol. If you feel like your mind is always busy, even when you're physically exhausted and you really want to fall asleep, but you have this kind of busy brain or like a wired and tired type of feeling, that's definitely related to cortisol levels. Uh, experiencing weight gain around the middle, particularly in the belly, there's actually a term called cortisol belly, uh, and it can make it difficult to lose weight around the middle when you are experiencing high cortisol levels, or you may notice that you're continually gaining there despite your best efforts to control with diet and exercise. You might also see menstrual cycle irregularities with elevated cortisol. This is my particular presentation in addition to many of these other symptoms. Uh, I noticed having a much longer follicular phase and a shorter luteal phase. So stress will definitely cause um, dysregulations in the menstrual cycle that will often manifest as a later ovulation and that shorter, shorter luteal phase. So let's switch to low cortisol symptoms. And often the reason I kind of group these together instead of putting them in separate sections is that a lot of people will start off with the high cortisol symptoms, but over time as that HPA axis, the brain's communication with the adrenals gets more dysregulated, then we'll start to see low cortisol symptoms after a while of experiencing high cortisol symptoms. And I've experienced this personally, so I can definitely relate. So some of the symptoms of low cortisol include excessive morning fatigue, relying on stimulants like coffee just to make it through your day. If you feel like you have no energy in the afternoon or you would just love to crawl under your desk at work and take a nap every single day, that's low cortisol. If you're experiencing depression, lack of motivation, or here's a big one, brain fog, that can also be related to thyroid, but there's a huge connection between adrenals and thyroid. So brain fog could, or depression or lack of motivation could be either issue. Dizziness upon standing. So if you stand up and feel that like little darkening in your vision, or you feel a little bit dizzy, or like you need to sit down right away after you stand up, 
your cortisol is actually responsible for raising your blood pressure just enough when you stand up to keep that blood flow to your brain. So if you're not getting that little tiny burst of cortisol that's needed to keep your blood pressure up to keep circulation up to your brain, you'll experience that dizziness upon standing. So a lot of people don't think much of that symptom, but if you're experiencing that, that can definitely indicate that you're a bit low on cortisol. And also if you're experiencing poor immune system function. So if you get sick all the time or you've developed an autoimmune condition, way back in, I think the 20s, we, we met with Carrie Jones. She's been on the podcast twice, but the first time that she was on the podcast, we specifically talked about cortisol and how it was important to have enough cortisol to help prevent the development or like get rid of any autoantibodies that we develop to our own tissue. So people with good cortisol levels can help prevent the development of an autoimmune disease. If you have low cortisol, that can encourage the development or at least not stop the development of autoimmunity. So that's really interesting. So immune, immune system function, which is super important to fertility. Um, also low cortisol symptoms if you're experiencing a lot of cravings for sugary or salty foods. Now, possible causes of cortisol dysregulation, either if you're in that high cortisol stage still, or if you've progressed to the low cortisol stage, if you just have too much going on in your life, that's a, that's a huge cause of cortisol dysregulation. If you're super stressed out, if you have a very high stress job, if you're trying to do too many things in your day, if you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself, um, I can relate to being a super type A personality who really struggles with perfectionism. So if that's how you're showing up in the world, it is likely that you have some adrenal stress going on. And whether or not that's manifesting for you in high or low cortisol really depends on you and how long that's been going on in your life. But definitely consider that as a potential underlying cause if you're identifying with that type A perfectionistic personality. Also going along with that is having poor self-care habits. So if you're pushing too hard and you're just not leaving room for rest and relaxation, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're just not taking care of yourself, you're eating poorly, you're eating on the go, you're not taking time to exercise, you're not taking time to recharge yourself or do meditation if that's something that's supportive to you, poor self-care can definitely exacerbate some of the issues with just having too much going on in your life and being super type A. Of course, poor diet can, can lead into this also. Um, you know, when you have low cortisol and you're craving sugary or salty foods, you can kind of keep that cycle of dysregulation going by eating a poor diet. So like having low cortisol can cause you to crave sugary and salty foods to keep you going, but then that just leads to more blood sugar dysregulation and more cortisol dysregulation. Of course, having past trauma that hasn't been dealt with can be a huge trigger for chronic stress. Um, as well as having physical stressors. So chronic infections, food sensitivities, environmental toxins or other exposures, those are all things that can put the body into a stress response, even though we're not feeling stressed out. Like maybe we don't have a ton going on in our life, but stress doesn't just come from our perception of what's going on in our lives. It also can happen from what's going on inside our bodies that we can't always necessarily identify. Okay, so let's talk about how to investigate cortisol dysregulation. So you can do you can do serum testing for cortisol, but I don't usually recommend doing it this way because it's much more helpful to have an assessment of how your cortisol is functioning throughout the day rather than just measuring it once at a random time of day. So you can do this through a salivary panel for cortisol, or you can also do this through a Dutch test. The Dutch Complete will measure all of the sex hormones that we talked about as well as the cortisol and cortisone levels 
levels and their metabolites in your body. Or Dutch also has an adrenal assessment only that doesn't include the sex hormones if you've already had those assessed a different way, but you haven't looked at the adrenal piece, you can do just a Dutch adrenal. You can also look at some additional markers that might indicate some cortisol dysregulation, like looking at your blood sugar. So we've talked about glucose, insulin, HbA1c, those can all be good markers, supportive markers to say, hey, how much is stress affecting your blood sugar? And then of course, dietary assessment, we can look at potential food sensitivities that might be going on or nutrient deficiencies, or just look at your diet to assess whether or not your blood sugar issues are being caused by some dietary stuff instead of just the stress. Okay, so possible therapies for cortisol issues. Of course, the first thing on this list is gonna be lifestyle changes. If you have too much going on in your life and you are that super type A person, you're struggling with perfectionism, that's really the first place that you need to focus. Like supplements can help support you, but they're not going to address the underlying cause of too much stress. Like you might be able to keep yourself going with some herbal supports or B vitamins or maybe even some calming supports, but it's not gonna take care of those underlying causes and you really need to start looking at your life and what you're focusing on and how busy you are um, for the underlying cause of this cortisol issue. I highly recommend mindfulness and meditation to people that are on this path and showing dysregulation in cortisol. This has been particularly helpful in my case. It's one of the reasons that I have spent several episodes recently on the podcast discussing mind-body therapies for fertility because I feel like this is an area that's really left out and not focused on enough. And I actually have a couple more of those coming up. I want to make sure that I offer as many perspectives as possible for different people who might respond well to different modalities. Um, other mental health or mind-body modalities might also be helpful. So maybe you need to see a counselor about some past traumas or things that you have going on in your life or stressors that you might need some coping skills for. Maybe you would respond really well to like an energetic modality or going to an acupuncturist. Those are things that can help as well. Dietary changes, of course, we've discussed diet several times in this episode, but making sure that you're eating enough nutrients, that you're not over-consuming sugar and starch, those things can be really supportive. And then there's the specific adrenal supports that can kind of put a Band-Aid on things while you're really addressing some of those underlying causes. So adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, rhodiola, shisandra, holy basil, ginseng, things like that. Um, some people might need, instead of the adaptogens, they might need more calming supports like phosphatidylserine or L-theanine or some other calming herbs like passionflower or valerian or something to help them sleep. Okay, so this was a huge episode uh, with a lot of information in it. I hope that you guys found this helpful. What I really wanted to do with this episode is just provide an overview of some of these different hormonal dysregulations and put it all in one place so that you guys could kind of assess whether or not you might show symptoms in one of these categories or several of these categories that might need some additional investigation with your healthcare providers, um, as well as some things that you could maybe do on your own or think about on your own to help get yourself back on track and a little bit more balanced to support fertility. So I hope that you guys found this helpful and please feel free to reach out with any questions that you have about this. I will be happy to add any of your questions about hormones to my next Q&A episode for July, which will be coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So feel free to email me at info at tinyfeet.co. You can also send me a DM on Instagram at tinyfeet.co. I hope to hear from you guys soon and I'll see you next week.